There is a dolphin right there, two of them. Right here. They're there, you see? Flipper and his friend. This is another miracle on my birthday. Music Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature the character actor Stephen Tobolowski. In addition to the 150 or so movie and TV roles that he's been in, including Groundhog's Day, Spaceballs, Mississippi Burning, Memento, the HBO program Deadwood, and recently the TV show Glee, he's also a very accomplished musician. In fact, this piano music that you're listening to right now is from Stephen Tobolowski. He was also in a band that recorded with Stevie Ray Vaughan when Stevie was only 14 years old. First recorded music from Stevie Ray Vaughan, and we're going to hear it on the program today. He was also in a band called L.A. Slugs and continues to practice classical piano music to this day. He also even worked on a screenplay with David Byrne from The Talking Heads. We're going to get into all these stories and more. Sit back and relax to another episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Tales of Tobolowski. Without further ado, Stephen Tobolowski. Okay, so welcome, Stephen, to Music Life Radio. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Dan. Could you describe for us your childhood growing up in Oak Cliff in Texas? It was brutal. <laughs> it was <laughs> brutal. Uh, no, it was it was brutal, but wonderful at the same time. Oak Cliff is... I guess it's a suburb uh, outside of Dallas. Not really. It's also a separate city with its own little strange set of laws. It's about 22 miles outside of Dallas, and we were a dry county. Do you know what that is in Oakland? Do you know what dry is? <laughs> no booze. No booze, man. No booze. And uh, also it was – Oak Cliff as a community was kind of a white flight community. Do you know what that is in Oakland? White flight? No, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, white flight was – now we're talking back in ancient history. This is back in the <laughs> 1950s and when segregation pretty much came in uh, and, and uh, <laughs> black people were allowed to live as humans – wherever they wanted and do whatever they wanted to do. Some communities were set up like to be places where various white people ran to that community so they could keep, you know, the schools predominantly white, the churches predominantly white, whatever. Okay. And that had a lot of societal influences, uh, both good and bad. Uh, of course, the bad influence was that we were living in a bubble of racism, and we had no idea we were doing it, which is ultimately poisonous. Uh, it meant that the black influence in our society, which includes music big time, 
was kind of kept to a minimum. We we had, you know, much more of Elvis Presley than we had, let's say, of Little Richard or Ike and Tina Turner. Okay. Uh, ju- just growing up, the influences were, were very different. Um, one thing that was really nice about Oak Cliff was it was also a kind of bubble of innocence. And everybody, everybody I kind of knew, we had this kind of pure view of our life that we were going to grow up and we were all going to either be a president or a king or an <laughs> astronaut. Ah. And we, we had to figure out how many countries still had kings to see where we could move to, <laughs> to to make that happen. Now, music was a huge part of just about everybody's life that I knew growing up in Oak Cliff. Uh, all the kids I knew took either piano. Piano was big. And, and there were several different types of piano teachers. There were the real serious piano teachers, and this were, was for young students who were going to do, uh, I think they called them juries. Do you know what, do you her, have heard that path of young pianists take where you, you go with hours of practice a day, very strict. You have to go to competitions continually. Okay. Uh, as a young person, you have to do scales and get voted on. Uh, then you have to do piano pieces. These people were being groomed to be professional musicians it was a serious musical path. Uh, there was one girl I knew, and I think it was, yeah, second grade. I was eight years old, and it was the first time I think I really noticed a girl. Mm. She was, uh, and I noticed her on uniform day uh, <laughs> at, at our school, which was Jeff Davis Elementary, which was named after, you know, the head of the confederacy of the civil jeff, war yeah. yeah jeff davis yeah president of the confederacy but we the president uh mr santillo ordained that one day a week you could wear a uniform if you belonged in some sort of child service organization like the cub scouts bluebirds brownies you, you know sure. that kind of, yeah so anyway claire richards was about as tall as I was, so that meant she always sat next to me or close to me at the back of a room. It also meant she always stood kind of right in front of me in any line, in any place we went. And on that first uniform day, she wore the bluebird outfit <laughs> with her ponytail sticking out the back of her bluebird cap. Uh, she cut a hole in the back of that baseball cap, the bluebird cap, and that ponytail was swinging in front of me, and I felt like a cat looking at a piece of string <laughs> in front of me. I tell you, I just wanted to bat that thing around. And I had this funny feeling in my stomach, and I went like, I don't know what this is, but I like it. <laughs> we went into music class, and Fridays – This is how, how old are you, Dan? I am 41. 41. So you may have experienced this because – Maybe all the music pro- programs weren't shut down at this time. That's true. Fri- yeah, Friday was was Talent Day. Did you have that? We didn't really have Talent Day, but we did have formal music classes that we attended when I was in grade school. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so for Friday was you could come up and everybody could perform. And in a way, that open format 
kind of encouraged you to want to be able to get up and perform. Well, that day, Claire Richards got up and played Picking Up Paw Paws, Put Them in Your Pocket. Oh. If you remember that song? I remember that. Yeah. I had never heard a performance, maybe to this day, so stirring, (laughs) so rousing. So, I mean, we were stomping on the floor. We were clapping our hands. And at the end of it, we were screaming. We were children. We didn't know what applause was at the end of a song. We didn't know what an ovation was. We just did it because we had been thrilled out of our lives by this performance by Claire. And the music teacher said, well, the only thing I can say is, Claire, you got to play that again. So Claire played it again, and I realized I was falling in love. And maybe not falling in love with Claire, even though maybe I was, but certainly falling in love with music. Because right after that, I was eight years old, I told my mother I wanted to take piano lessons. And uh, so you had the one teacher. You had the teacher that Claire had. You had the jury path. This is where, <laughs> where you practice hours and hours a day. But then you had the other path. That was, <laughs> that was the road I took. And mom wanted me on that road for several reasons. I think she didn't want me to be stressed out. I think she wanted my music to be more about uh, enjoyment than competition. And also it meant less hours of practice at home. (laughs) It seems like a good route. She set me up with piano lessons with Miss Hamby. Miss Hamby was uh, a very gentle older woman who lived with her sister. And I had one 30-minute lesson a week. And I didn't really practice in between. (laughs) But I loved playing the piano. And over the years, I played with Miss Hamby for six years till I was 14. And by the time I was 14, I had moved up in Miss Hamby's recital to the next of the last person playing, which was always the kind of... The top spot was held for Jack Nunn, who was very good and always played Chopin. So I, I got in there. I was playing some Chopin uh, preludes, and mm-hmm. I played a Mozart sonata. So I, I had learned all this under the Hamby system. Um, I think my crowning moment was at my final recital. And I was playing Valse by Augustus Durand. And I don't know if you know the song, but the song begins on the piano with a series of big chords and then arpeggios coming down. And, you know, I walked up to that grand piano up on stage. Everybody was very quiet. I sat down. I played that first chord, and that first arpeggio coming down, it sounded so good. And I played the second chord, and it was just strong enough, and the next arpeggio coming down. And I thought, you know, damn it, I'm going to add a third chord. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do it because it's so good. (laughs) And I added a third chord, and the third arpeggio had to start even higher, but unfortunately, I'd run out of piano keys, (laughs) and I fell off the end of the bench. Everyone in the audience went, (gasps) and I jumped up, and I grabbed the piano music and held it up and said, it's all right, everybody. It says right here in the music, pianist falls from bench. (laughs) 
that's when I realized that maybe I wasn't cut out to be a musician, but maybe something uh, in acting or comedy performer. Yeah, yeah, but but I but I, in, it was also the era. I guess guitar came in later. You know, guitar was not something that was really that popular then. It was kind of a very unique instrument. But with folk music in the 60s, guitar became popular, and I had a series of $70 guitars in which I could play any number of Peter, Paul, and Mary songs. And eventually, uh, I joined a group in high school called Cast of Thousands with a fellow named Bobby Foreman, who was extremely talented, and Jim Rigby, who was enormously funny. And the three of us played little venues like the Mormon Church. Or <laughs> no, it was not. Again, you know, we didn't have really red-hot gigs to play. And we played songs like Jesus Met the Woman at the Well and uh, Jamaica Farewell and, you know, songs like that. Somehow, someway through Bobby's connection. So let me, let me explain. Bobby was very talented. In fact, I think he became one of the members of New Christy Minstrels. He, he was really good, great on guitar, great voice. Through his connections, we were picked as one of five groups to record two songs on an album of Dallas bands, high school bands. Two songs. So there were going to be ten songs on this album. Uh, I graduated high school, and it was my freshman year, and Bobby said, Stephen, you know, uh, want to come over to Tempo 2 Studios? We're going to record these songs. I went over there, and there were these other kids there. And Bobby said, I got some other guys to play with us on the album. Uh, he got uh, Mike McCullough on uh, bass. Uh, I can't remember our drummer's name. I have to look that up. I have to look up our drummer's name. We we never had these guys before. And on guitar, lead guitar, he said, I got this kid, Stevie Vaughn. <laughs> and I'm going like, Bobby, he's a child. He was, what, 14 at the time? He's 14. He's 14. <laughs> he's sitting there with his, his Gibson guitar sitting on a metal folding chair. He had never heard any of our songs before. And Bobby said, it's okay, Stephen. He's good. He's really good. I said, he's 14. <laughs> Stevie looked up and said, so guys, I know what you're doing. Do you want me to play it like uh, Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix? And I said, "Uh, who's Jimi Hendrix? And Bobby said, shut up. That was, again, the lack of the black influence in our area. I had no idea who Jimi Hendrix was. Bobby (laughs) said, just do whatever you want, Stevie. Do whatever you want. So we started to play our first song, which was Red, White, and Blue, and – Stevie started playing the guitar, and the whole world changed. I had never heard anything like that in my life. And the guys in the recording room, the adults who were recording us, (laughs) they all stopped like somebody broke a watch on the Twilight Zone. (laughs) They all just stopped and then moved forward to the glass and watched him play. We, 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 we did about, I, I mean, really, it was no more than four measures. And Steve said, oh, that's okay. I got it. What's your other song? 
and we started the other one. Again, we did three, four measures. It's fine. Let's do it. So we went through our songs. I think we did one take for all the musical instruments, one take for all of our vocals. Bobby, I think, may have taken two takes because he could really sing. But then it was time for Stevie Ray uh, to do his solo. And he sat there and he did a solo for our first song, uh, Red, White, and Blue. He did two solos for each song. And the guys in the control room, you could see them through the glass calling more people into the control room. (laughs) And they came in and other guys were standing there kind of sticking their nose into the glass watching him. And you could see the man come forward, push a button. He goes, "Uh, that was really nice, uh, Stephen. Why don't you put another one down? And he goes, sure. Stevie would sit back in the chair and put another solo down. And the guys in the control room said, one more, Stevie? Got one more in you? He said, sure, whatever you want. And I understood then. They weren't, they didn't care about the recording anymore. (laughs) These guys in Dallas, Texas, that had probably not seen anything but kid bands, it was their first time to have seen the real thing yeah wow it was the first time that they saw chopin it was the first time (laughs) that they saw the magic of uh otis redding right in front of them and it's stevie vaughn this 14 year old kid
boy used to whoop up on me If I didn't salute when the flag went by That's how I learned patriotism and all that stuff I must admit though, I got pretty glad when I turned 21 And didn't gotta do none of that stuff anymore You know, kind of <laughs> Stevie and Jimmy, Jimmy Vaughn, his brother, you know, lived, they, they both lived around the corner from us uh, where we lived in Oak Cliff. And, you know, I never saw or heard from Stevie. Later I saw, oh, he, he became successful, big surprise. Mm-hmm. Never, never heard from him after that recording day. Never had any real contact with him. That was like in 19... 19- I want to say 1970, we recorded that song. You go forward almost 20 years, 20 years, I think 1988, something like that. I got a job doing uh, Great Balls of Fire, and Dennis Quaid was playing Jerry Lee Lewis, and I was playing uh, his manager, Judd Phillips, and... uh, Trey Wilson, the late great Trey Wilson, was playing Sam Phillips, uh, the recording engineer for Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis. Sun Records founder too, right? Yeah, Yeah, we shot it. Actually, we shot the movie in the real Sun Records. Oh, wow. And, of course, we met Sam Phillips. We met Jerry Lee Lewis. That's one of the great things about being in movies. You get to kind of usually meet a kind of piece of history. At that time, Jimmy Vaughn, it was the first time I really met Jimmy. He was playing with the fabulous Thunderbirds at the time, and he was playing Dennis's, uh, aka Jerry Lee Lewis's guitarist in his group. So Jimmy and I used to hang out and pal around. Uh, John Doe was on that show too. Oh, nice! So one of the great things about being in movies is when you could be in a hotel in Memphis. Sit in a hotel room. I believe we were maybe smoking uh, a joint. I'm I'm guessing that was probably true because <laughs> it was kind of that stage of my life. Drinking a beer and watching Jimmy Vaughn and John Doe play duets together in the hotel room. And I just sat there and listened. Uh, John really loved the song. Uh, he had a long chain on. He really loved the song, uh, The King of Names. And the two of those guys with their guitars just woodshedding in the hotel room. It was like one of the great moments of my life. In the evening, I would go out with Jimmy Vaughn and go watch the fabulous Thunderbirds practice. And afterwards, Jimmy and I would go over to Kiva Recordings where Eric Clapton did uh, Layla, the Layla album. And Jimmy and I would play around and all the engineers, because we were in the movie, the engineers would let us record our songs and we'd sit there and we'd play and 
and imbibe and and have substance abuse till like dawn. <laughs> and it was one dawn. We got it. We finished at about six, and Jimmy and I left, and. We went to a little diner. I don't remember the name of the diner, but the place is completely empty, except for one guy sitting in there in the corner. And Jimmy goes, oh, my God. And he leaves me and walks away, and he goes, Stevie, Stevie. And up stands Stevie Ray Vaughan. Now, the two brothers hadn't spoken to each other, as legend has it, for like a couple years. There was some kind of argument or something between them. I don't know what it was that's personal. I have no idea. But I came up, I ran up to Stevie and go, hey, Stevie, hey, <laughs> Stephen Tobolowsky, cast of thousands, Kimball <laughs> High School, remember? Remember Red, White, and Blue? You, you and I, you know. He goes, man, we don't do that. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so I felt very chastened. And I sat down. With Jimmy and Stevie, and we had breakfast that morning. And it was at breakfast that morning that Jimmy and Stevie started to reconcile. And Jimmy was saying, you know, I really want to do an album. We ought to do an album together. And Stevie said, I know, we should do it. And it was at that breakfast that they hatched the plan of doing Family Affair, the the great double album that Jimmy and Stevie did. After Jimmy was a changed man after that. After that, Jimmy was a wholly different guy. We would shoot during the day, and in the evening, Jimmy would run off to record with Stevie. And it's like he found his bestest, oldest friend again. And the two, two of them would be playing all night over at Kiva, and they laid down all of those uh, great tracks for uh, for that album. And... It was right near the end of right near the end of filming Great Balls of Fire. Stevie got invited by Eric Clapton, his idol, always, even way back in Red, White, and Blue days. <laughs> That's yeah. when he was fourteen. <laughs> yeah, to play with him at a music festival, and Stevie said, "Hey, Jimmy, why don't you come up? We'll play together." And it was the dream of Jimmy and Stevie's life. They flew up, and they played at a rock concert in Minnesota. I believe it was Minnesota. And at the end of the concert, Stevie jumped on that helicopter, and Jimmy jumped on the helicopter, and then Jimmy's wife, Connie Crouch, who lived over there on Driftwood Drive right around the corner from us, she jumped on the helicopter, and the pilot turned around and said, I'm sorry, miss, Uh, just we got too much weight. And so Connie jumped off, and then Jimmy Vaughn said, Where my wife goes, I go. And he jumped off the helicopter. And that helicopter took off, and it never made its height. It only rose about 50 feet off the ground, flew about 500 feet before it crashed and burned. And that was the end of Stevie Ray. And Jimmy was devastated. I I saw him after we had finished shooting the movie, I saw him back in L.A., and he said that he used the final editing of the double album as his mourning process for Stevie. And he said, 
he'll never be able to get it out of his system. But when, you know, when I went back and listened to that album, it like highlighted to me, you know, I'll never listen to it the same again. Because the pain and the love that Jimmy and Stevie, that, that, that they had for each other is in every lick of that music. And it was a lesson for me because listening to that album, you, you can tell that one of the great elements of rock and roll, I mean, everybody thinks rock and roll is about parting and the blues and everything, but there's straight up just a lot of pain in it too that has no better expression than with those guitars. And uh, I'll never, for me, I'll never forget that last meeting I had with Jimmy. I'd love to see him again and and see that he's okay. Um, but that was that was one big music uh, moment I had out of my childhood in Oak Cliff that was kind of unexpected. Yeah, that's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Now, uh, at what moment in your life did you actually make the decision that you were going to start to pursue the theater? I mean, I know you joked about it earlier uh, during the piano recital, but was there another moment, though? Because I know you were playing in bands in high school. Yeah. When, did, when did you decide to pursue acting seriously and, and, and was at a point in your career where you, or in a point in your life that you decided that was what you really wanted to do? I, I, think, I think there's a uh, – at different points in your life – you pursue an art, and at other points in your life, the art pursues you. Mm. And it's all luck. For me, when I was a young person, theater pursued me. When I was in high school, I won a lot of awards for theater. I won a lot of awards in speech tournament. It was very easy to get occupied with that because I won uh, like best actor in the state of Texas for the one-act play contest. Uh, we won several awards our school did. We had a very vibrant theater program. It was also, at that time in history, when folk music was very big, Jacques Brel and like cabaret music was very big. And so when I went to, uh, I always thought the two were compatible, music and theater. When I became a theater major, because it was still pursuing me at SMU, in my spare time, I would go down to the piano rooms and I would write songs a la Jacques Brel or, you know, folk songs of some sort, love songs, whatever. And I, I figured, well, someday these kind of little compositions I, I will perform. And when I came out to Los Angeles, I remember there was one open mic night and a lot of stand-up comics were getting up one at a time. And I went up and I said, well, my open mic, I'm taking over to the piano. And I went over and I sat down and I started playing some of my original pieces. And I thought, damn, that's kind of bold. I, <laughs> you know, they weren't that good, but I, I, I was not used to really playing in front of people. And then we, uh, I realized how fun it was to play in, in person, and I guess it was in the 80s, yeah, the early 80s, I started, uh, no, it couldn't have been the 80s, must have been, 
must have been 89, the end of the 80s, I started to pursue a rock and roll band kind of thing. And I got a bunch of friends together and we started attracting better and better musicians. And we had a full out rock and roll band that played all over Los Angeles. And again, I had no idea where this would lead me. Uh, Where it ended up leading me was I ended up getting a movie deal to direct a movie of a play I wrote. And they asked, well, who's going to do the music for your movie? And I said, oh, I will. I have all the songs written. And so I was able to use all these songs from my past that I had finally written and put them into this movie. So I hired myself as the composer. So it did kind of have a payoff. Even even though I don't think the movie was ever seen by a human, <laughs> what was the what was the it's movie? Called Two Idiots in Hollywood. I think it's it has a cult following somewhere, and I think the the sacrifice of of small animals is part of watching this film. It, it was <laughs> we did it. We we made this movie for a couple million dollars, and then the company that you know paid for the film went bankrupt. And they sold the film to another company, which went bankrupt, which sold it to another company, which didn't have a dis- distribution deal. So it kind of went straight to DVD oh, okay. and straight to videotape. But I get emails about it all the time, how it could be. The comments on it are, it's either the best movie ever made, which it's not, <laughs> or the worst movie ever made. And you know, at certain points in your life, you're happy with either accolade. Sure. Yeah, I'll I'll take. But uh, I've still pursued. I moved from doing the folk songs to classical piano, and I started taking classical piano seriously from one of those teachers that taught Claire Richards way back when. Ah, okay. And I and I started practicing hours a day. And when I went out of town on a film, one of the things I would have in my contract is I would have a piano I could work on. And practice with, and sometimes on my day off, I practice 12 hours a day and just love it. Because when you're older, you realize how much fun it is to practice. Oh, yeah, I still play in bands, and we have a great time uh, just playing together, even if we're not really doing any gigs or whatnot. It's just a yeah. great, great uh, release and artistic uh, you know, medium to explore. Now, uh, a couple of follow-up questions. What was the name of the band that you were talking about in, uh, in, in, the, in that period when you were writing the songs for this film? Uh, L.A. Slugs. Okay, I saw a picture of that on uh, your on <laughs> oh, the, man. Uh, on the uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party liner notes. I think there was a – or no, actually, it was on the video itself at the end. I think in the credits there was a picture. Oh, really? <laughs> There's a picture. And it says L.A. Slugs on a sign next to the band, and I couldn't tell – if that oh, was I really have to one of look your at that again. Yeah, L.A. <laughs> Slugs was one of them. You know, we we played in backyards, and then we actually had one gig on Wilshire Boulevard out at a sandwich shop, where the head of the sandwich shop said he would pay us in beer. <laughs> now this happens, I think, only to musicians. That's and true. It, it's tough when you're paid in beer <laughs> because you really want to feel like you're worth something. <laughs> But if you have three sets, I promise you that third set will not be so good. Uh, you know, it will be an instrumental set. I, you know, it, it, it won't. You, you, you'll be you'll be a little sloshy by then. 
Oh, guaranteed. Here's L.A. Slugs with action. In the city that will take you where you want to go. And girl, you're looking so pretty. I can't help it. My movements are slow Gotta have action Action, action from the start But baby don't you tell me that you're not a loving kind teamed up with other musicians like uh, David Byrne. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with him on the screenwriting for True Stories or at least your credit for the screenwriting? And 
Man, you've been around uh, California too long uh, <laughs> to know the difference between actually writing a screenplay and getting credit for writing a screenplay. <laughs> I, uh, boy, where where does this story begin? This story, I guess, begins that uh, my girlfriend, my girlfriend and I, we both started out as being actors, and later she decided she wanted to be a writer, and she was a very good writer. In fact, she turned out to be one of the best writers of our age. Uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize for Crimes of the Heart, uh, Beth Henley. And this play was an enormous success in New York and got a movie deal. Uh, oh, film, yeah. film was directed by Bruce Beresford, nominated for Academy Award. I mean, Beth was nominated for Academy Award, for Tony Award. It was amazing. Well, this the one amazing thing about Crimes of the Heart was it it didn't matter who you were or where you were from, you could love this play. We we had, you know, the common folk, uh, the people who kind of worked, you know, had manual labor jobs, who loved the play, thought it was just like their life. People who were school teachers and professors loved it. They loved the Aristotelian form of the play. And then also we had the very elite class of writers and directors and other actors in Manhattan who just loved the play. And one of the people who really loved the play was Jonathan Demme. Jonathan had a kind of history with uh, actually doing kind of kitschy kind of B-movies like Caged Heat for Roger Corman and things like that, but he just scored a very kind of artistic success with Melvin and Howard, which okay. is a terrific film, uh, if you haven't seen that. That's a wonderful movie. Uh, the chance meeting of uh, uh, just an ordinary guy with Howard Hughes along the road outside of Vegas. Oh, nice. It's it's very cool movie. Uh, but anyway, Jonathan, Jonathan's, I believe it was his ex-wife at the time, but he was still very close to her, Evelyn Purcell. Evelyn was very interested in directing as well and directing Beth's movie, Crimes of the Heart, or anything else Beth had. So through Beth's agent, Jonathan Demme got in touch with Beth and I and said, you know, hey, you want to go out and have dinner? So Jonathan and Evelyn and Beth and I got to know each other fairly well. One day, Beth and I were walking home from Pilates exercise when a car rolled up to us, and I thought it was going to be a drive-by, and the window <laughs> came down, and it was Jonathan. And he said, hey, guys, want to follow me and see what I'm working on? And I said, sure. So we got in our little car. We followed Jonathan over to the academy over on Wilshire Boulevard. This is where they show the Academy Award films where – all the Academy members meet. I had no idea. This is my first time in this building. It's like a palace. And you walk in and they have this huge red carpet and golden statues. And we walked upstairs into the theater, which is about a 1,000-seat theater with state-of-the-art stereo, state-of-the-art screen and projection. Walked in, and there was like nobody in the theater but David Byrne. <laughs> like standing right in front of us at the door. And down front were uh, Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth, uh, Jerry Harrison, the talking heads. 
these were the only people that were in the theater. And Jonathan said, well, I brought a couple people by, a couple friends of mine, to watch this movie. I was stunned. I mean, I knew who David Byrne was because I'd seen the uh, MTV videos of, like, burning down the house and things like that. Yeah. Uh, MTV was just starting up kind of at the time, and talking heads were all over that. So we sat down, and Beth and I watched the original print of Stop Making Sense before it was released. And it was our first time to hear some of these songs, like Life in Wartime, uh, Slippery People, um, Take Me to the River. I had never heard Take Me to the River, uh, David's version. And my mind was blown, not only by the greatness of the songs, but the greatness of the movie, the greatness of David's personality. And that night after the movie, we went out and David wanted to know my harshest critical thoughts about how to improve the movie. Where was I bored? What was the problem? David did not want compliments. He wanted to know the truth, <laughs> you know, where it was bad. Uh, David, David was all about work. And uh, so we talked for a couple hours that night about uh, Stop Making Sense. It was a day or two later, David called our home and wanted to know if he could talk to Beth about writing a movie he was working on. And I said, sure. I gave the phone to Beth. She was very excited, went over to his house. He happened to live right down the street from us, by coincidence. Beth came back a couple hours later and said, I had no idea what this guy was talking about. You know, I have no idea. I said, maybe he should ask you because you're better with coming up with stories or, or something that I am. I'm better with characters. So, sure enough, David called me up and asked me to come over. And it was, it was so weird going over to his house because there was absolutely no furniture in his house. <laughs> nothing, nothing. You know, you walk in the door and there was no, no tables, no chairs. There was, but on the living room wall, the empty living room wall, there were all these little drawings all over the place, like a couple hundred of them. And I looked at them. They're all hand-drawn pencil sketches and very finely done. And David explained that he was actually a graphic artist from the Rhode Island School of Design. And he did all of these drawings. And that when he was on the last Talking Heads tour, he used to amuse himself on the bus by reading the kind of graphic magazines you could buy at uh, – 7-Eleven and grocery stores that were always like the Weekly World News and National Enquirer and all those that heralded that they were telling true <laughs> stories. Oh, yeah. And David said, do you think you can make a movie out of these drawings? So this was one of the longest meetings I had in all my life. It was like two hours that I studied these drawings. And I didn't say a word, and David didn't say a word. I looked over every picture, and the pictures were funny, and there was lots of character in the faces, and I wasn't too sure what I could do. But at the end of the meeting, at the, if you call it a meeting, it was just we were there in silence. And I said to David, let me go home and try to do something. 
And if you like it, you can keep it and hire me. And if you don't, you could keep it and not hire me. And so I went home that night and I wrote about 35 pages of notes and some sketches for scenes and an overview for a plot. Because I figured the movie was basically going to be an excuse to have talking head songs. And so I figured all they needed was a framework. And I thought what we could do since I was a Texas boy is make it the Susquehannan. Is that what you call it? Uh, the 150-year celebration. I may have just <laughs> given a name of a mollusk or something. <laughs> the the Susquehannan. What is it? The cent, cent, yeah, century, century mark, 150-year celebration of this little town. And that would give an excuse to have David in the town, to have all the different characters of the movie that were on his drawings come to town. And also it gave it a kind of open architecture that where you can insert songs. So I took it over to David the next day and I asked him, I said, are you going to use like Take me to the river and burn it down. And I said, no, 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 no. All the songs are new. The only thing I know is that early on in the movie, I want to do this song called Wild, Wild Life. And David picked up a guitar, kind of scrooched up in the corner by all of his drawings, and played Wild, Wild Life for me. And in my head, I'm thinking like, this song is great. I mean, this song is fabulous. This is one of the best rock and roll songs I've ever, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was great. So I I realized this movie is going to be fantastic. As it turned out, uh, David hired me to to write the screenplay for the movie. And, uh, you know, I have a weird story about it, which I talk about in the podcast. Is it, I don't know if it's apropos for your podcast. Is it apropos or? Oh, uh, sure. But we can, you could just sum it up real quick and we can uh, refer people to that specific episode. I think it's 44. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, David came over and Beth and I and David kind of celebrated and David was talking about the psychic character in, in the, uh, movie. And Beth said, oh, well, you know, Stephen will be best for writing all that because he's psychic. And David kind of looked at me with a look of glint of humor in his eye. (laughs) And he said, oh, you're psychic. I told David that it's a long, involved story. You can listen to my podcast and hear the whole story. But I basically told him that there was this period of time in college that I could hear that don't laugh at me that I heard tones coming from people's heads, that I heard tones, and eventually I became able to interpret it, and people would pay me money, and I would listen to their tones and tell them what the tones meant, and the tones would not always tell good things, but they inevitably told true things, and it started to scare the bejesus out of me, (laughs) that I was actually reading people's lives from hearing these tones anyway beth and i ended up being hired to write the movie true stories we alternated scenes i wrote one scene she wrote another at the end of the day we wrote the entire screenplay in 19 days 
turned it over to Gary Getzman, who was Jonathan Demme's longtime musical director and friend and producer. And that was about the last we heard of True Stories for almost like 10 months. Heard nothing from David, nothing. And then one day I'm driving down the street, and there's David on his bike. And I roll down my window and yell, David, hey, what's up with True Stories? He said, oh, I've been meaning to call you. I rewrote the whole script. I cut out everything you guys did. I, I didn't know quite what to say. I kind of rewrote the whole thing myself. I said, well, that's good. That's good. As long as you're happy, it's good. And he said, but there is something I want you to hear. Can I come by? And I said, sure, please come by anytime you want. So David came over to my house with a cassette tape. And he said, I wrote this song for the movie based on your story. I didn't know what he was talking about. In the end, I think I ended up with something like, certainly the theme of the movie was, the the structure of the movie was still mine. I think I had about a dozen lines in there that were mine. Beth had about five or six lines that were still hers. But my biggest contribution, unbeknownst to me, to true stories, was that David wrote Radiohead based on my story of my psychic experiences in college. And to me, (laughs) I'll take that any day of the week, that (laughs) supposed screenwriting credit for a movie. In the end, you know, when the movie was being released, David called me up on the phone and said, Stephen, can we please list either you or Beth as the screenwriter because I don't want to look like that I did everything on this movie you know, that I acted in it, wrote it, directed it, you know, it looks bad. I said, please, whatever you want. I asked Beth, I said, do you want to be listed? She said, no, it's okay. So it just by matter of default, <laughs> I was listed as the screenwriter <laughs> of credit on that uh, particular movie. Yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> Here's L.A. Slugs with Civilian Soldier. I wanna be a policeman. Look out, wear a badge and gun. Woohoo, have some fun. Make speeding chicks up against my car. Wear shades like a star. I would never stop if I was a cop. I would never stop if I was a cop. Cause I'm just a civilian soldier. And I don't wanna get any older And if you will help me hold her Maybe I won't have to hold I wanna be a security guard Oh, 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 oh,
Uh, what I'd like to do now is actually ask you a question that I ask everybody. Uh-oh. And it's, a, you know, try to get more into an inner look at you uh, and answer it any way you like. The question is, what does music mean to you? Yeah. Uh, music's been different things to me at different periods of time. Uh, on the simplest level, it's entertainment. Uh, on a deeper level, I understand that music, every song, is painting a new landscape, that the drums and the bass create a frame, and within that frame is a whole other story going on with either voices or guitar or piano, those solo instruments are kind of working in the middle of the frame on a deeper level than the pictures that music gives me at times that kind of carries me away to a different place when I hear it. Music also carries me away to a different time on a different level. When I hear music, especially like Bach or Beethoven, I actually can hear the way people fell in love back then, the way they fought and the way they were jealous, and the way they hoped for better things in their life. I could hear all all those things kind of like in in listening to classical music. You you especially, you know, you take a listen to Schubert and you listen to some of his piano sonatas, and you will go to a different place, a different time, and you will know the way the people dressed. And you'll see the way they moved in rooms. It's really like traveling through time. And on the deepest level, on the, on the deepest level for me is, I, I don't think, I think the greatest punishment people could give me would be to take music away from me. It is... I just read a science article that said music is important because it is a, a kind of genetic derivation of the cry of a baby or the cry of a young animal, and it has been morphed and changed into something else. I'd, I'd, I don't know if I buy that. Hmm. I think I talked to one of the girls who I grew up with in school, who became a concert pianist. And she said, music is our expression of perfection. In the 145, she says, anyone who loves music is someone who also loves math because both of them are expressions of perfection. You know, I don't want to get corny about it, but music is the one way we have that we could feel the eternal. You can feel all of the past and all the future all at the same time. It it is a really transcendental experience, and I think it's the most important experience someone can have. I think when I hear schools and 
municipalities cutting music from elementary school. It's like, to me, I cannot imagine a bigger tragedy. To me, it's like the death of the soul of a society when you take music away from children because you're teaching them to love the eternal. You're teaching them to understand their place in the world, in humanity. It's as important tool as you could have. Well said. I Yeah, I agree. And it is a real big shame. And, and you kind of tied in um, a, a lot of common things that people have talked about, which is the math and science integrated in with the yeah. humanity, the humanity part of it. And, you, you know, for me, it really captures the human spirit. Each song tells a story and certain songs are definitely looking for that precision uh, in, in classical music and whatnot. There's just so many aspects of music that yeah. impact people that it's a sh- it's really is a shame to lose it from the public schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, I agree with you totally. But you know, for me, you know, I'm listening to music every day, right? And I take on projects. You know, I think you know I'm going to listen to something that I really haven't listened to. Like my project now is I'm listening over here. I've a to the symphonies of Haydn. That's mm-hmm. the project. So I've been through about five of the discs now. I only have about 100 to go. <laughs> but, you know, I, it's like I want to I wanna know what these things are before my time on this planet's done. There's so much brilliant, beautiful stuff. That kind of leads into one of my next questions. Was what, are, what music are you listening to mostly now and uh, these days? Uh Classically, I'm listening to Schubert and Haydn a lot uh, these days. I, I can't get enough of Schubert. Uh, probably the most beautiful tunes, more beautiful than Mozart, more beautiful than Beethoven, if such a thing is possible. Nobody wrote tunes like Schubert. You know, if I go to the piano and I start playing some Schubert, you know, my wife will be passing through the room and she goes, what is that? <laughs> and I'll say, it's Schubert. Believe it or not, uh, rock and roll-wise, I'm always a little late to the party. I have I guess I really started loving Nine Inch Nails about, honestly, you know, about 10 years ago. Okay. But I still love to listen to Nine Inch Nails a lot, kind of rock and roll-wise. I like to listen to a lot of uh, blues from the 40s. I, I have some kind of, I think it's Alan Lomax. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the kind of uh, audiophile guy who drove around in his car and his truck and recorded authentic blues recordings from people in the backwoods in the 30s and 40s in the South. Yeah, there's some amazing recordings. Amazing. And so I've been listening to a lot of old blues recordings, too. So that's kind of what I'm listening to now. Well, excellent. I want to get in, and I want to thank you for sharing a lot of stories. We're getting close to uh, about the hour mark, and I wanted to get into some of the stuff that really got me interested in you. I I first learned about your podcast on uh, the Mark Maron Show. Oh, yeah. That was a great interview, by the way, and uh, I, I had Mark on my show uh, probably about a year ago at this point. But um, 
So I've been listening to his podcast for a while, and I heard that, and I go, I got to check out this Tobolowski files. This your storytelling is amazing. It's really inspirational, and it's just the kind of thing that we're trying to capture here on Music Life Radio. And uh, really appreciate you your time. And uh, could you tell people about Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party, the movie, and how it <laughs> how it inspired the Tobolowski files? And tell us what your goals are with the Tobolowski files. Yeah, I uh, I guess it all started when I was held hostage at gunpoint in a Safeway <laughs> grocery store in Dallas, Texas, when I was 25. And I used to tell the story about what I did to get out of that alive to people at parties with a beer in my hand. And one fellow, a friend of mine, Robert Brinkman, back many years ago, said, you know, we ought to do a movie where you just stand in front of the camera and tell your stories. You know, like the hostage story and all these other, you know, they're great stories. And I go, yeah, sure, that's like, that's great. Let's do that. And so <laughs> we, it was, to me, it was like paint drying, you know, that ain't going to work. <laughs> so we, we didn't talk about it again until about maybe 2005. And Brinkman and I were both, <clears throat> fortunately, still friends. Hmm. And we had a, uh, kind of a lull in our work schedules. He's a cinematographer. It was October. I said, yeah, why don't we do that movie where I stand in front of the camera and talk? So in January, I put together a slate of stories. And in January, over a period of four days, we shot with no script, no rehearsal, no permits, no nothing. And we (laughs) shot this movie called Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party. Uh, the original version of the film was four hours and 45 minutes long. Brinkman showed it to me, and I said, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. This is like Gone with the Wind. Brinkman said, no, no, Stephen, we're cutting it down. We're going to cut – it's only going to be 90 minutes. I said, Robert, no. So they cut the film down to about 90 minutes, and then kind of an amazing, weird miracle happened. Since we really didn't have a budget, we borrowed everything. We called on favors. One of the favors we called upon was some editing equipment, and in our returning the editing equipment, one of the discs we had used to edit the film on stayed in the disc drive. (laughs) When we returned the equipment to HBO, the guys at HBO who are friends of Robert and Andy's who lent us the equipment saw that there's something in it and they thought it'd be a hoot if they took a look and see what kind of, you know, porn we were shooting in our backyard. <laughs> <laughs> they saw it and they went like, somebody should see this. And they sent the film to their higher ups and we, out of the blue, got a call from HBO saying, would you like to uh, premiere this movie at the HBO Comedy Festival in Aspen? And we felt like we had been hit in the head with a two-by-four. <laughs> we said, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we went to Aspen. We were invited to South by Southwest. Since then, we've been to about 20 theater festivals around the world. We've been to Buenos Aires. We sold out London. We sold out New York. We opened the Biograph Film Festival in Bologna, Italy. Uh, it, it was all over the world, and it was the little engine that could. Brinkman and I did nothing, just people kept seeing the movie. Like I said, uh, 
no script, no nothing, just the camera set up. It the 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 idea of the film was it goes from dawn to midnight on my birthday. Uh, we start out at the beach with me happy that it's my birthday, telling stories to the camera, preparing for my party. It goes to my kitchen where I start preparing sausages for that evening. Goes to my backyard where I'm grilling the sausages. Ends up at the party where people are eating the sausages and cake, and I'm still telling stories the whole time. And it ends up at midnight, the dregs of the party. Everybody's gone and just a few lit candles in the dark telling the final few stories. And it was edited beautifully. Brinkman and Andy did just a wonderful job editing the film. Anyway, this film got around to a guy named David Chin at SlashFilm.com, and he thought it was one of the best films he had seen all year. So he called me up on the phone and said, could you be on my film show which, at Slash Film? I said, sure. In one of the breaks of the film show, he said, how would you like to do part two of Stephen Tobolowsky's birthday party? as like maybe a podcast. I didn't know what a podcast was. Mm-hmm. He explained it to me, and for the next year, David and I have been producing stories. Right now, we we just recorded one this morning, I think number 48 or 49 this morning we've recorded, and we're releasing them now about every two weeks. And amazing things have happened. It's totally free. It's on iTunes. If you go to tobolowskifiles.com, you'll, you'll be able to download any story you want for free. You, su- you can subscribe for free at iTunes by going to the Tobolowski Files under podcast. It's there. We have like 700 five-star reviews on it. Uh, the program director at Public Radio in Seattle wrote me, uh, just like you wrote me, Dan, and, and said – can we play the Tobolowski files on our radio station? And I oh, said, wow. Sh- sure. And so for the last six months, they've been playing the Tobolowski files every Sunday at one o'clock. And I get the most beautiful emails from Seattle about the shows. Now, some of them are about music. Some of them are behind the scenes about acting. Some of them are just stories about life, like, finding out your girlfriend's pregnant, uh, having a teacher who wants to try to end your career, mm-hmm. uh, being fired from jobs in, in television and movies and how to deal with it, falling in love, uh, getting your heart broken, all sorts of different stories. I, I kind of, again, no script, so I kind of right brain which story is going to be next. Um, the David Byrne story was one of my favorites. That's Voice from Another Room. Uh, I had no idea I would ever tell the story of my psychic phenomenon because that's always laughed upon. But the Tobolowski files gave me a way to do it. As it turned out, a Simon & Schuster in New York heard about the files. They heard some of the stories. They asked me if I would do a book based on the Tobolowski files, so that's coming out next year. Uh, just last week, the public radio station now in Louisville has picked up the Tobolowski files too. So it's once from the little engine that could with Stephen Tobolowski's birthday party, which is available uh, on Amazon, 
on Netflix. We have our website, which is S stbp as in Stephen tobolowski's birthday party stbpmovie.com you could order it there you can order a signed copy there uh itunes asked if they could have a one-click digitized download from itunes you can get it there just put in Stephen tobolowski's birthday party it's kind of a hoot to see what you can do with no money and no script it's a pretty good movie and uh and I think what I'm hoping for is to continue these stories, uh, to be on more radio stations, to reach more people, and hopefully see if the book is a success and maybe take it on. I mean, being an actor, it is not inconceivable that I could do a tour with it. Like oh, a one, absolutely, yeah. One-man show where I went in and let's say I told – the Stevie Ray Vaughan story in its entirety or told the talking head story or told the story about falling in love when I was eight years old. You know, it's very possible. I've done some of these stories live and it really works well as theater. So uh, that's kind of my goal. That's great. So you've answered my next question. What's next for you? I think you've pretty much covered that. (laughs) And Um, Californication. Yes, That's yes. next for me, too. I'm oh, okay. starting Californication, a whole new season in a week. So that's next for me, theater, uh, film-wise. Uh, any other projects, uh, film projects or TV projects? Yeah, I, uh, I just did a pilot for CBS called Hail Mary, and it's really a special show. We won't know if that's going to be on the air successful or not until the summer, but it was a great experience and my fingers are crossed on that show. And from the radio state radio shows, Kendall asked me if I would do a story specifically for Kendall, not part of the podcast, just an original story for Kendall, which I did. And it's called cautionary tales and it could be, got at Kindle at Kindle uh if you just go to stephentobolowski.com it'll automatically take you to the Kindle single it's only a dollar 99 uh it's a short story and the dollar 99 kind of goes to pay for David to do all the stuff in the Tobolowski files and for us to kind of put the whole show together so it kind of is our fundraiser so to speak so if you end up wanting something to read, commuting, or something like that, you don't need a Kindle to read it. It'll read on any device. All you have to do is download the Kindle app, which is free, and you could read it on any computer or so-situated cell phone. So uh, that's called – just go to stephentobolowski.com, and the story is called Cautionary Tales. It is somewhat amusing. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. It's been a real pleasure to have you on uh, Music Life Radio. Thank you. I'm glad we could do it, Dan. Thank you. All right. Well, have a good evening. Okay, man. All right. Thank Talk you. to you later. Bye-bye. Right. This is magnificent. Another one. Thanks again to Stephen Tobolowski for his amazing stories. Check out more of his stories at Stephen Tobolowski's Birthday Party, the movie, and... The Tobolowski Files podcast 
And we're going to leave you with one more song from that Stevie Ray Vaughan Cast of Thousands recording session. The song entitled I Heard a Voice Last Night. Thanks again, Stephen. We love you, man. Can't wait to see the touring show. Yeah.